you can holler, you can applaud, you can scream, you can do anything you want. I can't hear you anyway. <laughs> I'm Kyler Bingham, and you're listening to the Salt Lake Dirt Podcast. On today's show, I'm very excited to have Tyler Meesum as a guest. Tyler is a documentary filmmaker, and his most recent project is Murder Among the Mormons, a documentary series currently playing on Netflix. It has been uh, consistently ranked pretty high as far as uh, being watched all over the world. So if you have not seen that yet, highly recommend it. Uh, incredible story uh, about some crazy stuff that happened here in Salt Lake City in the 1980s. So check that out. Tyler's uh, behind a couple documentaries that have really stood out to me in the, in the past several years. Uh, one being An Honest Liar, a documentary about the illusionist James, James Randi, who huge fan of him. He's an incredible, incredible man. And if you have not seen that film, you need to check it out. Also, Sons of Perdition. Um, I believe that's his first feature documentary film, if I'm not mistaken. It's about um, young men who, who leave the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints church, uh, polygamy families who are the, the young men are ostracized and they kind of have to find a way in the world. Um, fascinating documentary. So check those two out. Um, also, anything really he has put out has been super high quality and engaging. I Want My MTV is a recent documentary. He released uh, about the the origins of MTV when they used to play music. So very fascinating stuff. Uh, and Murder Among the Mormons is just outstanding. So let's just jump right into it and chat with Tyler Meesum about Murder Among the Mormons on the Salt Lake Dirt Podcast. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here, Tyler. Of course, man. Thank you for having me. I listen to your podcast. So to be on it, on this side of the curtain, uh, is, <laughs> is a pleasure. Excellent. Well, that's an honor, man. I appreciate that. Thank you. Of course. Um, so I, I have a few questions. I guess let's let's just get into the, uh, the series that's currently on Netflix. I was going through my old books and I, I came across this, which is probably pretty familiar. Oh yes. To you the, so I'm holding up a book called The Mormon Murders. Now, mm -hmm. if you're if you're not from Utah, um, you may have never heard of this 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 thing that happened back in the '80s. But um, I know me and Tyler both grew up in in Utah, so I don't know about you, but I always remember hearing it was a you know a little before my time, but I was just a little kid. But I remember hearing about it, you know, as soon I was curious about about stuff and wanted to you know know about true crime and it, it's quite the unique story so i'm just curious how you um and and jared hess came to the project and decided to work together on it sure i mean well well and first off we should probably alert your 400 million listeners that <laughs> there that we are going to uh, give some spoiler alerts to, okay. you know, th there are spoilers. We can't, it's very difficult to talk about this particular documentary series without, you know, revealing some of the spoilers. So sure. if you haven't watched the series, go watch it. It's on this little thing called Netflix. You may have heard of it. <laughs> yeah. I, you can go to Blockbuster, <laughs> buy a Netflix, take it home. Uh, but go watch it first and you'll appreciate the documentary series much more and the podcast much more if you do that first. So, Go do that. We'll wait. 
or you can pause it. That would be better. And then uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about it. So okay. Murder Among the Mormons is, uh, it's about a guy named Mark Hoffman, who in the 1980s uh, was a document dealer here in Utah. And he uh, dealt in amazing documents. He found and discovered remarkable documents, including many documents that he sold in the Mormon church. And many of these documents were the uh, antithesis to what the Mormon church taught. They were contrary to many of their early histories including the Salamander letter, which claimed that Joseph Smith was visited not by an angel, but by a talking amphibian, a white salamander who led him to the gold plates. Regardless, Joe, uh, Mark Hoffman found uh, hundreds of documents, uh, American history documents, and then there was a bombing in October of 1985 where a man named Steve Christensen was killed, and then Gary Sh or, uh, 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 Kathy Sheets uh, was killed as well. They picked up pipe bombs outside of their office and home, respectively. And it killed them. And then the next day, a pipe bomb was uh, found in Mark Hoffman's car that seriously injured him. And this set forth a massive investigation that dealt with documents and all that other great stuff. The spoiler alert is that Mark Hoffman was a forger and that he planted the bombs. So now you don't have to sit in front of the series for three hours. You, you know you all the secrets. <laughs> So how we came to this project is, I mean, you know, I've made a number of documentaries and many of the documentaries, I mean, you know, one of them is very Utah centric, Sons of Perdition, but many of them deal with, with belief and deception, why we believe certain things. Um, and I'm kind of fascinated by that topic, being a former Mormon or a foreman, I guess, if you want to, if you're into brevity, uh, <laughs> Uh, myself and and I'm kind of having this interest in in deception. Mark Hoffman was the best at deception. He was a genius. He was magical. He was an amazing craftsman of forgeries, and he was able to sell these deceptions to many many individuals. So I was always fascinated with deception. And um, when this story was presented to me by, uh, for those locals who would know Mr. Doug Fabrizio of Radio West. Uh, he's a friend and he gave me a book and he said, you should make a documentary on this. And by God, he was right. And that was in 2016, I believe. And then in 2017, we started, I started putting it together and developing it. And then Jared Hess, uh, who was a friend of mine, we've known each other for decades. Jared and, and I came up uh, through the crew. He used to, he was an AC and um, I was a grip. And then I started directing commercials and things. And I directed a Mormon boy band video a Mormon boy band video. Wow. Please don't find I it. I want to see that. Please don't. <laughs> Please don't look for it. Um, and that was the pinnacle of my career. And it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> and a podcast. And a podcast. See you guys. <laughs> Let's do an hour on the Jericho Road Mormon boy band video I that, know I that I did. Band. Yeah, Let's I know do. That. Yeah, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. Um, but anyways, he was uh, the AC on that. So he was assistant camera. And we just kind of became friends and we bumped into each other all the time. And then he made a little movie called Napoleon Dynamite that nobody saw. Nobody. <laughs> except for small, uh, you know, small tribes in Africa and <laughs> some remote tribes in uh, Amazon. Those are the only people who haven't watched it. Um, and he came aboard and we were friends. And I, I said, you know, I knew he had an interest in it. So I said, let's do this together. And four years later, it's on Netflix. Well, I, I I was so excited when um I think I saw one of your first posts when you when you kind of let it out that you that this was coming soon, um 
And when I'd, I'd read this, the, the Mormon murders book and, you know, my dad would always talk about it growing up, um, Mark Hoffman and, um, and the bombings. And I was like, why, how has no one made like a decent, like, I, as far as I know, I don't think there's anything, maybe, maybe some like a Dateline type stuff in the past, but not, not a real documentary. Or yeah, there's been some really shitty like investigation discovery and really bad, like, you know, 30 minute documentaries right. on it, or not even documentaries, these really bad recreations, really bad. <laughs> Which, and that's because it's a difficult subject to tell. It's it, oh, absolutely. I, I do have to say, what well, like a huge compliment with that. I'm always kind of like skeptical when I hear about reenactments or, or, uh, or something, you know, of, of that nature. But you guys really nailed, you know, the, the, the guy who played Hoffman. And totally. Him, I mean, totally. incredible. Yeah, like, he was, he was great. He was so great. He looked my, like Mark. He acted like Mark and he took it to heart. Like he totally, studied mark hoffman as much as he could even though he didn't really have lines or anything he just really got into the role it was it was fantastic yeah, it was and he's a utah boy okay yeah. well, most we shot here in utah all of the interviews other than a few on the east coast that we had to collect right well then I, we, we shot the recreations here as well i don't know if this is a spoiler for for people but the the location looked like the masonic temple here it on, totally on was and that was killed that. Yeah. so cool to see that i mean that is that that building is outstanding and um it was so cool to see you shoot in different rooms within that building. I mean, it really yeah. set the mood for, it was like, couldn't have done better. It was perfect. Yeah. We basically lived in there for about two weeks, just bringing them in, shooting them, sending them out. Yeah. There was a lot of people we, we interviewed and they hit the cutting room floor, unfortunately, but uh, we interviewed a lot of people. Um, so I, I, it being such a you know i can't imagine if this these events happen to you to a person personally like um even with having you know you know 30 years or, or so between it like it's super painful and I, I we can we can only imagine um it seems like you had a lot of people including mark hoffman's ex-wife willing to speak with you which was um pretty incredible was there was was there some trepidation there or were people pretty open to the idea of um, talking about this with you? Yeah, there were a number of people who just wanted, they were happy to talk about it and willing to talk about it and wanted to talk about it. And, um, you know, they have they, a number of people have talked before it possibly on those really shitty investigation discovery pieces. <laughs> I'll never work for investigation discovery again. <laughs> if I never have, and probably now I never will, which is bridge, fine. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, um, uh, but by and large, you know, <laughs> We were different in that, you know, a lot of entities and a lot of other people have tried to make this series and tried to make this film. And it's, I mean, I, I, I swear to you, there the bombs weren't even cleared before Hollywood came knocking with the story. And I'm not even joking. I have a, a file folder of all of the options that were bought, all of the people that wow. tried to make this series or this documentary. And no one could. And a part of it was is because it's a difficult story and a lot of people didn't want to talk. But Jared and I, you know, being locals and being close to these individuals and having made films before, it was easier. But we didn't just like do this fly by night. We're going to interview you on Tuesday. We're going to bring a camera crew and we're going to interview you. We literally courted these individuals for months and years. And that means taking them to lunch. And that means having phone calls with them. And it means hanging out with them. And so it was a long process of gaining their trust and learning about them and learning about the story before we finally sat down with them. And 
I think one thing that is remarkable about the individuals with whom we spoke with is how vulnerable they were. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were grown men revealing their pain and their fears and their sadness and their hurt. Um, and not just for me and not just for, you know, the grip in the corner, but for what has been tens of millions of people mm-hmm. so far. Uh, and yeah, there is pain. There is a lot of pain that still lingers in Salt Lake City from this. Uh, and making this film has uh, caused an, a bit of it to resurface. Um, sure. Yeah. Both in the victims' families and the people that were victimized in numerous ways by Mark Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, it, it. I think it's so true. I, th- I think it is such a complex um story to tell that you you really do need locals who who kind of understand um the complex nature of the city that we live in i mean uh there's you know of course the stereotypes and the cliches that i I know you get it probably i get all the time when i'm ever i'm out of state people will make you know polygamy jokes or whatever which is fine but there is so yeah, much more. Because it's true it's for you. In your case, <laughs> it's, it's not well, a joke. Yeah, like, yes, I have seven wives there at home. It's very expensive. <laughs> yeah, last time I talked to you, they were together. Six, so you, <laughs> you got that new 14-year-old, didn't you? <laughs> exactly. You got it. Yeah. Sorry, Joseph Smith. That was a bad. <laughs> too, too close, close to, to home for him. Yeah, Joe. he's listening. <laughs> <laughs> he's always listening. He's always there. Um, oh, I do got to Okay. I love the old footage of the um, the the LDS church, like the story of Joseph Smith. Um, right, was, was copyright like gone with that? So it was fr- it was fair copyright schmoppy right the documentary. Right, you can you can. Um, we did. In. We were able to fair use that, and that you know, and, and fair use laws enable documentary filmmakers and educators to use pieces of material. Sure if it is to quote unquote educate. And, and with those, you know, we, we have a difficult time kind of telling the story of Mormonism because if you know Mormonism, it is not something that you get in the first discussion, man. It is, there's so much to it. And, and setting this stage of Mormonism in this hundred plus years of, of, of founding of this church and coming to Utah, et cetera, et cetera. And that was essential for our audience because we're not making a film for ex-Mormons. We're not mm-hmm. making a film for Mormons. We're making for someone in Kansas and we're making some a film for someone in, 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 in Japan, you mm-hmm. know? So we had to kind of tell the story of Mormonism. And this is a setting in which allowed Mark Hoffman to live, but also to thrive. Um, and, we initially we had a cut where it had like you know talking heads thing and then joseph smith found a raw golden plates and then (laughs) and i said you know what because i i I was like i remember these mormon videos from my childhood let's just put those in Mm -hmm. and so i found a bunch of them and we we you know we put some of their own so we kind of let the mormon church tell their own story with their own propaganda Mm -hmm. um we we brought in these editors and one of the editors has worked on my last film and uh, Greg O'Toole, another guy named Matt Precop. And we brought them in uh, and we, we convinced Netflix. We're like, we want editors to come to Utah because we want to work with them. We want to be in the room with them. We want a storyboard. And they, they came here and then like a week later, COVID hit and the oh. world shut down and we had to have like zoom meetings with them they literally moved here to edit this and we they were just down the street but uh, 
they knew nothing about Mormonism. They didn't, and they didn't want to know anything about mm -hmm. it. So they were kind of like, you know, we wanted to tell these crazy stories and all this stuff. And they were like, nobody cares. Let's just give them the setting um, just enough to get the audience moving and, yeah. and keep them in, in suspense, if you will. Well, no, I think it is like, um, I mean, this is probably Netflix. I mean, and it was number, was it number one or two? It, for, it, it was in the U.S. It was, it, it only got to number two. That's pretty incredible. Which, though. No, it stinks. <laughs> it's so funny because every morning I'd get up and I'd look and I'd walk into my girlfriend and I'd be like, God, we're number two on Netflix. <laughs> and she would go, you're number two on Netflix. And yeah. I was like, all right, all right. Okay. Say, all right. <laughs> Well, it's so interesting. It's like, cause I mean, at least from the, the public point of view, I mean, you know, that's a lot of people, but you really don't know how many people are watching it. You just know it's in the millions for sure. Tens of. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. It's worldwide. So, I mean, it's, and it's, it's been number one in a number of countries that hit number one in the UK and oh, that's other entities. So it's, it's, it's been widely, widely viewed. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it's definitely, I, I watched it. It took me two nights to watch it, not because I didn't want to finish it all in one sitting, but I had to, I had to break away for a bit, but I was frustrated that I couldn't um, finish it. And I knew like, you know, I knew the, the general story of it. So it, it's, it's, it's just an awesome um, series film. Um, Thanks man. I mean, it's a hell of a story. Oh, it's incredible. And we were, we were lucky. It, it, we were, we, and, and the beauty of it is, is that, while you knew a bit about the story, mm -hmm. even people here in Utah and most people throughout the country and world knew nothing about it. Yeah. Which, you know, we weren't telling the story of, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, who everyone knows about. We were telling the story that nobody knew. So it allowed us to kind of met out this information. It allowed us to dole it out quietly and secretly and to mm -hmm. maintain suspense and secrets as much as we could. Uh, and kind of play it in that three act structure of the first episode, second episode, third episode, and and not reveal uh, and, and not reveal as long as we could keep that suspense going that Mark wasn't just a victim; he was actually a forger. Well, that was I mean, talking to the different people that that were you know friends with him or, or um, you know they worked in the in the document business, um, how now they had a it seemed to me that they had a really hard time kind of placing him in in their memory and uh, you know he's he's a genius clearly but mm -hmm. people hesitated saying that in a certain respect because it's like you don't want to give a killer the credit sure. for being really good at something that's right. wrong <laughs> i mean we open with that we open with old shannon flint saying don't well, make me great. answer that i don't want to do yeah, it he was i don't want to make a hero out of him because he was fantastic but he was so is, good <laughs> oh he was so great and he's such a great dude and such he loved doing this he uh -huh. loved being a part of it and that was you know a big part of the story is that we i think innately so many of us want to revere someone like him and, and there is something to be revered he was a genius he was a craftsman he was an artist he was remarkable at forgery remarkable at what he could do and you know most people would forge you know there's forgeries out there and they forge an autograph they forge a george washington signature or whatever mark would forge letters and documents and contracts and photographs and currency and 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 printed material it was remarkable how he did it and what he did 
And you want to revere a guy like that because he was the full package. It wasn't just that he would use the right paper. He'd use the right ink. He would use the right verbiage. He'd use the right handwriting style. He would, he would create poems. Like he wrote an Emily Dickinson poem. Um, he would make documents that had the correct postage on it. And the, he knew that letters wouldn't be sent on a Tuesday from this area. And he'd research all of that stuff. So but then he'd find the right paper and he'd age it correctly and he'd use incredible techniques. And we show some of them in the mm -hmm. film and that's just a scant number. I mean, the vacuum thing yeah. where he used a screen door to pull the ink through the paper, fucking genius. Like Can how I swear? did he, this you know, is pre-internet, pre how, how on earth did he figure out some of these techniques? I mean, and he, just, I mean, he's younger than us, I think. I just, I just turned 40. Um, how old was he during during this? Um... He was in his twenties. Yeah, <laughs> so he was young. But and, and no, you don't know. You just you just know. Uh, uh, you know the thing about Mark is he he was many things he was, but the best thing he was is he was able to keep secrets. And I think Mark, I, I made a film about magicians, uh, sort of. It was a, an honest liar. It was about James, love the amazing movie. Randy. Yep, and uh, it's a, it's mostly about deception and honest deception. But one thing I revere about magicians is they're able to keep a secret. You know, they can do a trick and everyone goes, how'd you do that? <laughs> and if I did, I'd be like, well, this is how I did it. <laughs> um, but Mark never did. He was able to keep those secrets. He was able to not tell. And I think that's, I think innately all of us kind of want to revere him because he was good at it. And I think all of us, there's so many of us would love to be able to pull a heist. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'd love to, I would love to rob a bank. <laughs> this is your, this is going to sure, yeah. no, make I... you a party to a party to a crime. <laughs> I... <laughs> but you know, we'd all like to pull off this massive heist. But the first thing I do is like I get together with my beer buddies and I'm like, holy shit, did you read about that crime? I did that. That's I'm buying me. drinks. But, but Mark never did that. He could keep these secrets of how he did it for so long until I think he, you know, had to ultimately tell everyone. And he had to at that point, or he would have gotten the death sentence. But right. And he and he's been um in the prison out here right ever ever since um he's been at the point in the mountain no he's in gunnison actually he's he was oh. moved there oh i don't know six seven years ago or something okay um and then so hopefully not another spoiler but he does he has not talked to anyone as far as i know um over the course of him being imprisoned no he has not and um uh he i mean he gets visits and occasionally he, he's written letters but it's been years since he's written a letter that i know of mm -hmm. um and many people have written him hell i've written him dozens of times and i get no response i've written him over the course of four years and after a while when nobody responds to a letter you just start like the garden is nice and <laughs> we had cupcakes for dinner <laughs> like he, but he's in prison what else he, he reads that and does whatever he does in prison um but no he's never spoken and i don't think he ever will and i think that's part of the only power he has mm. He wields the fact that he knows how he did this. He has that story. And I can spend four years trying to tell his story and probably won't get it correct because he knows his story. Mm -hmm. uh, and he'll, you know, he'll probably die in prison and he'll die with that story, I'm guessing. Fascinating. Um, so uh, sw switching gears, I am curious about how, like the trajectory of your career um, and you're a Utah boy and you've stayed a Utah boy as far as I know. Um, 
which is is no easy task. I know you know there's a handful of people. <laughs> no, it's who, no easy task to stay a Utah boy, regardless <laughs> of what your profession is, right? <laughs> no, Utah's lovely, of course. Yeah, I I love Utah. You know, like I grew up here. I hated it at times. I I moved uh, a couple times, but I came back and I have like a new new appreciation for it, a, a good sense of humor about it, but but a true love for the place and the people mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Um, so maybe that, maybe that answers my question right there. Like you, you are in the film industry, um, staying in, in Utah. Is that just, um, a conscious choice or oh, it's a restraining order? I can't leave <laughs> boundaries. No, that's not true. Um, you know, look, I like Utah and I, I, as a documentary filmmaker, I don't necessarily think it's necessary to live in the metropolises of LA or New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I can make a film in Florida and, and two of my films are Utah stories. So I was able to milk that cow as much as I could. Uh, and I, I think there's a beauty in, 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 in being here. And, and I've been fortunate to make films that I love, that I want to make. And I haven't had to make shitty movies. I haven't had to make reality TV and I haven't to have to do projects that I don't want to do. And I know people that live in LA and New York and would rather make documentaries, but they can't afford to. So they make, you know, Lifetime or TLC stuff. Yeah, sure. and, and so living here for a long time afforded me the possibility, afforded me the opportunity to make projects that I love. Um, and now I think I'm in a place where I can more aptly choose, but I do think there's a beauty about Utah artists and my girlfriend, she's from New York and she moved here. And it's like when we, you know, that sci-fi world, when we used to actually get together and meet people, you remember, right? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, it it will happen again, (laughs) but it was like, you'd meet someone and she would go, we'd start talking about like, whether you're when you left the church, you know, when when you were a Mormon and she would look at her clock watch and go like, oh, minute 32 seconds. Like that's <laughs> you just meet someone and you automatically like have to figure out. And I, I think there's something amazing about Utah that everyone is either trying to prove how Mormon they are or how not Mormon they are. <laughs> and as a former Mormon and a lot of people in the state who are former Mormons and a lot of artists in the state. We are taught to be industrious. We are taught to kick ass. We are taught to believe in what we believe in and to prophesize it, even if it means knocking on someone's door. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're taught to you know, use these passions that we have and send them to the world. And as an artist, I mean, yeah, I, I was a Mormon. I went on a Mormon mission, for goodness sakes. I took those and I put it into my art. Mm-hmm. Um, and I put it into my craft and, and doing what I love to do and suffering for it for a while. And I think there's that beauty of Utah artists that just go, and, and regardless of, of Utah and film, Utah has this small man syndrome. And it reflects not just in the art, it reflects in like the, like sports. Like the jazz are good and we still, we'll, we feel like we'll never be that good. We still feel like we're just always stepped on and picked on and, and laughed at. Mm-hmm. And then we always have to prove ourselves. And, and, and that's wonderful. We, we kind of have to just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and show that we are good at this. Um, and, and so it's nice making films here. And there's a great core of documentary filmmakers in this state that are making great films. Yeah, no, it's, it's so true. I think, um, you know, if, yeah, if, if you've never been to Utah listeners, like come here, come to Sundance and, and stay after to get a real experience of the state. Uh, I was talking a few weeks ago to um, 
writer Nick Flynn, and he he came here. He said several years ago to to work with. Um, I think he was. They had they hired him over at Judge uh, Memorial to do some writing workshops with the kids, and he oh. he was just like he, he said he was a bit shocked at how um, he's like those those are some intense good people there, and there's so many. I think he's the one that said there's so many um, tattoo shops and and you know, so many piercing. Like, they're everywhere. He's like, I had no idea there's a counterculture. I'm like, no, the counterculture is just as committed and strong uh, right. and proselytizing in its own way at times as like the, you know, the LDS face. So yeah, it's um, nice equilibrium. Yep, it is. It really is. Yeah. Um, well, cool. So I want to talk um, just grow, growing up. You grew up. Um, did you grow up in in um, Farmington? Where did you grow no, up? No, no, no. I grew up in Pleasant Grove. Pleasant Grove, okay. Which is basically Farmington, just south. <laughs> okay, that, yeah, I got I to switch there. <laughs> um, I'm curious about your your interest in film. I, you know, I'm I'm sure you had you were you probably took to it when you were young. Um, what kind of films sure. were you drawn to? What kind of artists did you like at the time? I mean, I came from a big Mormon family and and a, a family of kind of overachievers in many ways. Uh, and I was the black sheep of that overachiever. But I was I excelled in what I excelled in, which was, you know, art and creativity and trying to make the cute girl in class laugh while I tried not to pee my pants. <laughs> so I, I was always, you know, I always had an interest in art and it kind of didn't my parents didn't know what to do with it in this family of scholars. And, you know, people who knew me growing up most likely would have thought that I would have been in a documentary about murder of Mormons instead of making one. So <laughs> I, can, I, I, I kind of um, gravitated towards arts. And um, when I was 16 in, in high school or 17, I made some stupid video about like drinking and driving and it placed fourth in the nation. And I just was like, I want to make films. I kind of want to, even though I knew nothing about it and there's, there were no opportunities in small town, Pleasant Grove, Utah. And it was very small when I grew up, it's very different now. Um, but I just kind of went after it and I read every book I could. I watched every movie I could, which meant watching Caddyshack 26 times. <laughs> so, I, and then I, I started uh, gripping. I started like working in crew. Uh, and then I made a short film, a comedy based short film. And then I just, that kind of parlayed me into making commercials and I was doing pretty well making commercials here in Utah and I was doing all right. And then one day I woke up and I was like, I did not fall in love with cinema when I was 17 years old in order to make grocery store commercials. Mm -hmm. So I quit doing them all together and it was a financial blow. And I said, I'm going to make a film. And I made Sons of Perdition and that. Um, kind of moved me into the documentary space, which I never really intended to be in. I kind of always thought I'd be in narrative, non or in fiction film, mm -hmm. but I kind of fell into documentary and I, I really love it. It's really a joy making it. So, um, yeah, Sons of Perdition. I mean, that did really well right off the bat. It was in it was in Tribeca. It was. was. It, it, okay. Oprah bought it and made it part of her Oprah documentary club. Uh, so, it, I mean, if you're going to make an album, make a your first album be really good, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and and then there was the pressure to make the second film. And the difficulty with with making a, a film is that I mean, Sons of Perdition took four years. Mm -hmm. An Honest Liar took four years, I think, as well, three and a half. Murder Among the Mormons took 
four years to make. I made a film called I Want My MTV before that that took years. Mm -hmm. So you don't, you know, it's not a weekend job. You don't say, I'm just going to make this film. When you choose a project and you choose a film, you have to know you're going to love it and you're going to live above the store for a while. And so uh, I kind of have to choose carefully and choose wisely what I, what I do. And fortunately, and I'm also, you know, I'm also petrified of bad reviews. I mean, even, <laughs> even this, and I've gotten by and large, 95% of the reviews on any film I've done have been really good, mm -hmm. but just the one, like some asshole on Twitter will say like, it's a little slow. And I'll, <laughs> I, I will go oh. into the corner just like, I'm terrible. I'm a terrible artist. <laughs> I like cake hashtag <laughs> thinks my film is slow. <laughs> so, so I just don't, I don't go into films lightly and I don't, it, I, and I need to be less precious about it. You know, I, I need to just go, it's just a commodity, you know, and being on Netflix kind of taught me that mm -hmm. in that, you know, my last films is like, they showed it a festival and they showed it another festival. And then, then there was TV and then there was DVD and then there was Netflix and, this is just like, it's on Netflix. Everyone in the fucking world can watch it and will watch it. it has, and then yeah. a week later, there's a new toy out. <laughs> and my film is just, you know, on VHS <laughs> in, the, in the back of the video store. So it's learned, it, it's taught me kind of just that, you know, these are commodities. And, and, and you know, and I, I shouldn't kowtow to that. I should actually continue to love the films I'm doing and, and make sure that I make good ones. But yeah, I know sometimes I, I don't want to make, I don't want to take four years making that, another movie. That, yeah, so, <laughs> so long. I mean, that breaks my heart. Like that you, um, that it's some asshole on Twitter can, can hurt you like that. We'll, we'll get oh, him. I know. Yeah. And I'm new to Twitter. I'm totally, someone's like, you gotta be on Twitter. You got it. Dustin, <laughs> our mutual friends, like you gotta be on Twitter, man. And I was like, I don't have time to scroll through Donald Trump's <laughs> tweets. I don't, I don't, I don't, but he's like, you got to do it. So now I'm on it. And I, I basically just Google myself. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, um, that can't be good. That can't be good. Even if, even if <laughs> no, you are getting like primarily, you know, and one thing I've learned about you know, most artists, the, the good ones at least are, are so internally self-deprecating and, they are so critical of their work that if someone points out something that they had that thought at some point, they're going to be like, he's right. It is slow. It sucks. <laughs> it's <laughs> slow. <laughs> it's worse. <laughs> My partner on this, Jared, and he's made a number of really great films. Mm -hmm. And I'd, I'd call him after this film came out and I'd be like, dude, did you read the, did you read the review in time? It was amazing. And he'd be like, I don't, I don't read reviews. And I was like, do you, you never ever. And he goes, no, I don't read any reviews at all. And I wish I was that Zen about it, that I can just be <laughs> like, I don't, I don't care what hashtag I like cake thinks about my movie, but I do care. I <laughs> if he likes cake, he should like my movie too. Right. Makes sense. They're both great. <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. Um, oh, I want to talk to you about film festivals. So I covered um, a bunch of films at Slamdance and Sundance. Um, well, the last few years, but then this past year, um, just because you have done the festival circuit, you know it well, I'm sure. Um, it was really interesting, especially the way Slamdance um, made it available to, it was like 10 bucks for anyone that wanted to buy 
uh, a ticket and you would um, basically you could on your roku you could download the slam dunk slam dance channel and have full access to all the films for like two weeks cool um so i talked to a lot of filmmakers um you know because a lot of times with the festivals like an amazing film and if it doesn't get good distribution no one ever sees it so people see it at the, at the festival rave about it and then it's you know then it's like it's gone um so it sounds like your, your films that have gone into film festivals have been fortunate enough to you know they've been bought they've been picked mm-hmm. up they, they've streamed on on big platforms like like netflix um what do you like what is your take on film festivals um as far as I, I really like the the approach they did as far as making it accessible to, you know, like we were, you know, 17 year olds. I would have loved to have had something like that accessible mm. to me. It would have been sure. incredible. So I don't know. I just thought maybe you could talk about film festivals for a bit and your experience and sure thoughts on it. Uh, film festivals are amazing. And, you know, when I made my first short film, Helen, 2000, 2000 i think or 1999 it got into a number of small festivals and it was amazing it was wonderful and i have traveled the world because of film festivals and i'm i'm not kidding i have been from poland to brazil uh to italy to france to new zealand i mean i've just traveled all over on other people's dimes Mm -hmm. sending me over there and you go to these film festivals you make a film and you kind of like follow the circuit of film festivals and you started a film festival and you make some friends. And then throughout the summer, you just keep going to these festivals and you hang out with like-minded filmmakers and you're watching films, you're talking about films, you're meeting people, you're shaking hands and you're drinking free beer. It's really amazing. Mm-hmm. But if you don't get into a festival, it's really, really hard to make, uh, you know, to get your film known. And I'm, I, I mean, I, I'm really hesitant to tell people to go into the film industry. It's it is crowded. It's difficult. It is cutthroat, and it's really really hard. And even if you're successful at it, um, it you you still it's still very difficult. Mm-hmm. And you're still trying to push a boulder up the hill, and you're still working nights and weekends. And if I worked as hard as I did making widgets or apps, I'd probably have a swimming pool. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't have a swimming pool. I have a bathtub, and so it's <laughs> a good bathtub. And I pee in both of them. <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's a difficult field. And if, you know, if you don't make a great film and you, you're just pushing a boulder up a hill the whole time. Mm -hmm. However, festivals are amazing. And when I went to my first festival is with Sons of Perdition and I, you know, we premiered at Tribeca and all of my films have premiered at Tribeca, oddly enough. And that's a great Mm -hmm. festival. Mm -hmm. Um, You just meet so many amazing people you meet. And that's how you really parlay it into your next gig is you bump into someone, you run into someone having a party and you, they like your movie and then you call them up and they don't answer. <laughs> and then you call them again or then you call the other person. Yeah. No, it was like, it was, um, I would love to see them combine kind of what they did during the, you know, I covered some films at, at the Berlin Film Festival too, and they I thought they had a, kind of a neat setup as well. But if we could combine some of it to make it accessible to, you know, some some fans, I think that would be that would be great, and not make it so exclusive. Yeah, and um, they, now the thing is, everyone is so afraid to go up to Sundance. I we yeah. live in Utah. There is a yeah. goddamn world class event in our backyard, yeah. and people don't go up. 
It's true. And mind you, I understand it's difficult up there. It's crowded. It's expensive to get tickets mm-hmm. and, and you don't know where to go and what to go to, but it's not as hard to navigate as you think. Yeah. And you, people who live in Utah should embrace the Sundance Film Festival and go yeah. to it as much as they can. No, I totally agree. I mean, a lot of times um, over the years, I'll go up just by myself because people are kind of like, oh, I don't want to. I don't want right. to drive. I don't want to park and take the park and ride. I'm like, ah, it's I'm going by myself. That, you're, you're, you're dead weight. I'm not going to bring you along. <laughs> it, it, it is nice to um, know people up there and to get in. And it's yeah. nice to be able to. But I'll tell you, it's, it's a great place. And I don't know. I honestly can't tell you if post-COVID, the film festival circuit is going to be what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if the independent film world is going to be what it used to be. There is a dying middle class for filmmakers right mm-hmm. now. I mean, hell, there's a dying middle class period, but <laughs> yeah. it, it's a really good time. I think if you are young and have a, a crazy idea and you pull it off, and if you're an established filmmaker, uh, sitting in that middle class area can be very difficult right now. Um, you know, to be mid thirties and not have had something great. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean it can't happen and it should, but you know, it's 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 uh, it, it's it's important to show at film festivals, and I hope they stick around. But we don't know if they will after sure. COVID. I mean, who knows? Yeah, who knows? I mean, it, we did, I didn't see this coming this last year. So um, maybe we could end on this. I am curious about um, your COVID experience as much as you're willing to share, as far as like <laughs> sure. on a on a professional level, mostly like um, or whatever you want to share. Uh, it sounds like you said they the editors came out. They were here for a week or so, and then it kind of got yeah. It was um, taken away from you like what you had intended. So how how was it trying to um, finish up the project uh, for for Netflix? I'm sure you had like a specific you know deadline you had to, you had to work towards. Um, everyone basically being stuck at home. How did how did that work for you? Yeah. And, you know, when, when Netflix finally came aboard this project uh, and they, you know, actually started paying us, it was January of last year. And prior to that, I had done four plus years of research and access, uh, which meant that when they finally said go, I could hit the ground running. There Mm -hmm. was no delay. And that's great because if we hadn't, I mean, we shot the interviews in March and we, we came back from New York and LA and two days later, you know, I think that was the 13th. You remember that was, mm-hmm. and it was just like, that was it. But, but what we had was the footage and the editors in place. And so we could continue to edit and they just stayed in two separate rooms and edited well, we stayed in our little basement and, and they'd send us links every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it came time to do the recreations, uh, that was in June and we were the first project Netflix project to shoot and oh, the wow. safety precautions then were, it was, it was insane. Um, but it was also in a weird place when nobody really knew the safety, you know, we still didn't sure. know, we didn't know what it was. So, but we shot, we shot for three weeks and it was full on masks and it was full on, you know, smaller crew. And um, we all tested beforehand. So it was, uh, it was, it was difficult, but it was actually kind of freeing in many ways. And we, we thought of ways not to do it. We actually had animation created of like Mark and Shannon out shooting guns in the desert. And we're like, this looks like jib jab. We're not going to do this. (laughs) So we ended up shooting. Um, 
And uh, I mean, personally, COVID kicked my ass, man. It was hard. I, I, I didn't get it, uh, but it was hard. It was very difficult. I'm a social animal. Mm-hmm. And, and even like, you know, not being able to take meetings and not being able to, you know, film and not being able to pitch um, and being stuck in my basement and having a two-year-old that we had to juggle while we're both, my partner is a filmmaker and she's brilliant and we're both trying to make movies and it was hard, but there's a lot of people that had it a lot worse than this white Mm -hmm. middle-class filmmaker. I I assure you, Uh, I'm just, I'm just grateful to be honest. Like I have a vaccine, Mm -hmm. my first shot in me, it's springtime. I haven't thought about Donald Trump in like a week. Is it a nice? It's it's just (laughs) like, it's like the world is just, there's optimism. Yeah. And I have a number two film on Netflix, Um, you know, so I can't complain really. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, there is like light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, I, I think we, you know, same with me. I, I didn't get it. Um, I'm a high school teacher and we were in person this whole time. So there was some, there was wow. some, like it was nerve wracking at times and things were not handled the best because, you know, this is the first time in our, in our, you know, last hundred years that something like this has happened. So, right. um, but yeah, there is lights like, you know, I, I got my second vaccine like a month ago. So amazing, huge weight, huge weight. I love it. I and think that's so, great. Yeah, I think it's, it's great. I can't wait. And I get mine soon. And I just, I just think, you know, I, I, we were very stringent. We were mm-hmm. very stringent about we quarantined and we were safe and, um, and I'm glad I didn't get it, but I am going to be so glad when I can just mm-hmm. go get a beer and see my pimp again. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I that came off too straight. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> well, I think um, I think we did a good job on this interview. Um, Thanks. I think this was this was awesome. Thank. I've been wanting to get you on for a while, so I'm glad. Um, yeah, I probably would have told you to wait until this project comes out. Anyway, it was so. no, it was perfect. It was perfect. Uh, um, it worked out great. So thank you so much. And not at all. Um, Love it. Let's all grab a beer with Dustin as soon as we're all in that sci fi world. In that sci fi world. <laughs> grabbing beers. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Murder Among the Mormons, everybody. If you haven't seen it, what's wrong with you? Uh, it's over on Netflix right now. <laughs> um, and if you have seen it, go watch it again. You'll pick up something you didn't see the first time. Perfect. So, Tyler, Wonderful. Mason, thank Thanks, you so sir. much for being with me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Take it easy. You bet, man. Bye.